Good morning, Grace Life. Doesn't it feel so good to stand in God's love? Oh, makes all the difference in the world. Um, well, again, I'm just so happy to be here. I'm so happy that God brought every single one of you into this uh, amazing house of the Lord this morning. And all of you at home, too, we're so thankful that uh, you are up, you are with us, and that blesses us. And I hope that this time blesses you as well. Um, so, you know, I just, I like um, listening to the lyrics and singing them to the Lord. And I ask God to kind of tuck some of those truths into my heart. And one of the verses that we just sang said that I'm not captive to the lies. And I was a... Uh, really just feeling captive to lies the other day. And so I got out a piece of paper and I started writing down some of the lies that I just felt like, you know, this voice um, that was just repeating. And um, things like, I can't do this. <laughs> and this is just all too much. And this is unending. This chaos is never gonna stop. I'm stuck. Where do I even begin? I have to do it all. When it's perfect, I'll stop. And uh, that last one really is just something that is often just echoing in my mind, that when it's perfect, I'll stop, <laughs> which means, what does that mean? I'll never stop. <laughs> I'll never get to honor the Lord on the Sabbath. I'll never know what it means to uh, take on the yoke of Christ and rest. I'll never know what it means to be still and know that he is God. And so I was just writing down, you know, these lies, and then I was just writing down promises and truths to uh, really to destroy them and tear them down, like Scripture says. And I was reminded, you know what? Whatever God has called me to do, I can do it through Christ who strengthens me. When I, when I am weak, he is strong. And when I feel like it is all too much, that's, that's the time that I just need to stop and just say, you know what, Lord? You are God. You be God and I'll be Sarah. <laughs> and when I'm feeling like I'm stuck, you know what? We go to bed, we wake up in the morning, and you know what words comfort me more than anything else when I open my eyes? Your mercies are new, like the sunrise. There are fresh mercies for me today. And when I think that... I'm just being assailed, and I just feel like the devil is just snagging me, you know, back. One step forward and two steps back. I, I think of a promise in the Old Testament, and I can apply it to, to, to my life, that no weapon formed against me is going to prosper. And that's true, because if God is for us, who can be against us? And then one of the most comforting truths that I ask God, and I ask him, also this morning, I was praying for you all, and I was just praying that the Lord would just speak truth to you today and provide you peace and give you strength. And um, these three words mean everything to me. It is finished. It is finished. The most important work that needed to be done was done on my behalf. It wasn't done by me, and it is finished. It is finished. It is finished. I am free. I am free. 
so I hope that I hope that didn't take up too much of our time, but um, it's just something that God is putting on my heart in this season of life. So if you you maybe already did scan the QR code, but that'll take you to our scripture reading today. But before we do that, here is our favorite welcome that we do every single Sunday, and uh, it just means so much to me too. So we, you can say this with me if you want, or you can just soak in these words. But I guarantee you that most of you in here, you know what it feels like. You know what it feels like to, to, to be all these things, to feel all these things, and need what God provides. To all who mourn and need comfort. To all who are weary and need rest. To all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares. To all who fail and need strength. To all who sin and need a savior. To all who hunger and thirst after righteousness and to whoever else will come, Grace Life Church opens wide her doors in the name of Jesus Christ and offers welcome. Now let's go ahead and turn to today's scripture, which we are back in Romans, and we are starting Romans 5 today, and we're going to be going through verses 1 through 5. So starting in uh, Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love, whoopsies, oh, I'm going to have to follow along, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Sarah. Good morning. Welcome to Grace Life. My name is Tommy Clayton. I'm the lead pastor here. If I have not had the privilege and the pleasure of meeting you yet. I look forward to connecting after our service here. Uh, before I get started, there's some things I want to say that I'll forget that aren't sermon related, but they're Grace Life related. Um, and I'll forget if I don't say them today, and we'll maybe remind you at the end of the service too. The Journey Church, uh, who has several campuses in, in Central Florida, they contacted me as a courtesy just a few weeks ago and let me know that uh, they've been planning something for two years and COVID has restricted their ability to do it. They wanted to get all their campuses together in one location and have a big kind of a blowout worship service. And one of the only places that's large enough to do that is actually the football stadium here at Deltona High School. So they have rented that facility and they called me just as a courtesy, which was really kind and gracious of them. Pastor Jim did, Pastor James, and we prayed together. I encouraged him and he said, man, I just wouldn't want any, you know, sometimes churches get like this, don't they? Isn't that an ugly and a terrible thing, man, when churches play this turf war? I've never wanted to come over here and do that. There are so many unreached people and de-churched people. If every church was filled to the brim on Sunday morning, uh, we still wouldn't reach everybody. So different churches reach different people, and, and they're our partners in the gospel. And so I encouraged him. We prayed together, and I said, man, we'll do all we can to help you guys. He said, well, it's going to be over there. The entrance is going to be by racetrack. He said, but in case, case people get confused... Or in case your people are like, whoa, six, six flags, what's going on? Circus, what's going on today? I wanted you to know 
Next week, it's going to be considerably busy on this campus, uh, so I wouldn't want you to get confused. We're still going to have a service right in here. There may be more people than normal. Some other people may get confused and come over here, and that's, and that's okay. Some of you may get confused and find yourself in the football stadium uh, listening to a different pastor and with a lot more people there, and they're going to set up a baptism afterwards, so you pray for them, encourage them any way you can. You may find more parking uh, is utilized on our campus, but that's okay. We're all on the same team. Amen. So I wanted to give you that information, and now I just want to pause, think about the text that was read, and let's pray and ask God to bless our time together and to remove any distractions, anything that would encumber us from receiving all that, that he has for us through this passage today, okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you so much, Father, for your love and for your grace and for the truths that Sarah just shared that combat and tear down the lies, Lord, that we so easily get, cap taken, get taken captive by and that hold us hostage, Lord, and just wreak havoc on our hearts, our minds, on our souls. I pray that today uh, these, these truths will be liberating. They would be freeing, Lord. There would be people who are in bondage of the wrong perspective on their suffering, and they've lost the, the real means and grounds and anchor of their hope. And I pray today would be uh, a liberating day of truth for them. And I know that we're just getting started. There's no way we can cover everything in this passage, but I pray you would bless the time that we have and bless our church, Lord, and, and use me as your agent just to get out of the way and to exalt Christ and to make plain his word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand by. All right, here we go. Um, everybody suffers. Everybody suffers. If you can see me or hear me this morning, whether you're at home or you're sitting in here or whether you download this later, all of us have one thing in common. We all suffer. Job said, man is full of trouble as the sparks fly upward. I mean, I don't want to be a, I don't want to bring you down today, but essentially the minute you're born, you're dying. Aren't you? Right? Have you ever seen one of those face time-lapse videos? I watched one of Queen Elizabeth, who's still ticking, man. God saved the queen, right? But, but you see these, these time-lapses, and you're like, man, we age, gravity takes over, we get wrinkles, our bodies break down because the world breaks down, because the, the universe is breaking down because of a curse, because of sin. We face disappointments and discouragements. We have financial suffering, physical suffering, relational suffering, political suffering, social suffering, personal suffering, all kinds of suffering, and all of us face it differently, but we all have that in common. We all suffer, but here's something that's interesting. If you read about suffering in different places and different thought systems, you will know that Americans seem to suffer the most poorly, and here's what I don't mean by that. I don't mean we suffer more than other people suffer. In fact, we suffer less, truth be told, right? We have modern luxuries, we have medicine, we have a great government when it's functioning the way it's supposed to and the right leaders are in place. We have a lot of things that other countries do not have access to. And we have a lot of systems and disaster reliefs, soup kitchens, homeless shelters, financial aid. It's, it's really incredible and staggering when you think about it, all the luxuries and the helps that are in place, and yet... When we face suffering, when we hit tragedy, when we're confronted with a crisis, we fall to pieces. We in the West, especially and particularly we in America, we fall to pieces. True or false? 
Okay, who said false? Wait a minute. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. And you know what? As Christians, we're not really immune to that sometimes. We fall into that same way of thinking. Peter, Peter Berger, not hamburger, a different burger. Peter Berger is a famous sociologist, and he says this. He says, every culture throughout history gives people the framework and the system of thought to be able to handle suffering. In other words, it provides its people with a worldview, with a worldview that gives meaning to suffering and evil and tragedy and pain. That's kind of a courtesy. Every culture provides that. They, they take their best thinkers, their intellectual movers and shakers, and they provide that as a, cursor, as a courtesy so whenever you face evil and suffering and tragedy, you can thrive. You can just plow right through it. You can face it with a smile. And sociologists and anthropologists also agree that modern Western, <laughs> modern Western culture, and that's a nice way of saying us, Americans, we have one of the worst cultures in history when it comes to helping people face suffering because we don't have any resources. The best we can have is, you know, be warm and filled or, oh, I'm so sorry, or secretly, man, I'm glad that's not me. Or I can't imagine. That's pretty much all we have. No hope. Now, those same sociologists and anthropologists are scientists, so they claim to be objective. So they also admitted that Christianity, as a worldview, as a system of thought, Christianity has helped people deal with suffering the best. That's no shock to us, is it? I want to illustrate that. Now, bear with me. I want to read something to you. I want to read two opposing views from people who lived in America, okay? One is a cultural and intellectual force that helps shape Western culture, so it makes sense that we do the poorest at suffering because men like this help shape the way we view suffering and pain and life and death and all of that. The first one is uh, Mark Twain, just a fun-loving guy who wrote Huck Finn and all kinds of other stuff, right? Here's what he wrote. Now, this is his autobiography. He wrote this, so nobody's trying to twist or manipulate his words. This is what he wrote when he was staring death in the face. You ready? He said, A myriad of men are born. They labor and sweat and struggle for bread. They squabble and scold and fight. They scramble for little mean advantages over each other. Age creeps upon them. Infirmities follow. Shames and humiliations bring down their prides and their vanities. Those they love are taken from them, and the joy of life is turned to aching grief. The burden of pain, care, misery grows heavier year by year. At length, ambition is dead, pride is dead, vanity is dead, longing for release is in their place, and it comes at last, the only unpoisoned gift ever had for them, death. And they vanished from a world where they were of no consequence, where they achieved nothing, where they were a mistake and a failure and foolishness where they have left no sign that they have existed, a world which will lament them a day and forget them forever. Well, that's a pretty grim and bleak outlook, isn't it, on life? Now, let me read another worldview. This is the wife of a dying man. He died last week. He was in the hospital. He contracted COVID. He was put on a ventilator, and you've heard that story numerous times. I'm sure he was languishing, and everyone knew that the end was near. And she's sitting beside the bedside of her husband, who was a strong, valiant Christian, herself included. And this is what she wrote. How do we get through something like this? We lean not on our own understanding. We stand firmly on the rock. 
we cling to the truth and we take a step back to open our eyes. Look at how the Lord has prepared us for this. See the Lord's provision throughout all of this. Ask the Lord to pull back the curtain so that you are able to see a glimpse of his work in the midst of our trial and be filled with joy for John, who will soon receive those words we all long to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. As I sit beside my husband, speaking this truth to myself, refusing to see merely John's outer shell as his reality and choosing to embrace God in his word, this is where there is the peace that surpasses all understanding. John will soon be healed. Only the Lord knows for sure how long we have left with him. Beloved, it is well with my soul. I am praying, she says, that it will be well with yours as well. That's a different perspective, isn't it? Can I ask you a question? Which one's more compelling? Which one's more beautiful? Which one's more true? And which one do you line up with? Because it's easy to fall into the, the former instead of the latter, isn't it? A myriad of men are born, and this is, means nothing, and what's the point? That's Mark Twain, who was an atheist, by the way. And then there's that other outlook. Those are two worldviews who are colliding. Only Christianity has a God who came and suffered. That's, that's just staggering and shocking to think about. I hope that surprised you to hear that. You know, our faith is a God who became a man crawled inside a human body and became vulnerable to the point, which means killable, he became vulnerable to the point of death and went to the most excruciating, shameful, humiliating death and spiritually the worst thing, separation from God, being banished, forsaken, and God's wrath being poured out on him. We have a God who suffered. We have a God who was hungry, who was tired, who was exhausted, who was rejected, who was misunderstood. We have a God who suffers. Only Christianity has a resurrection that ultimately proves that evil will not triumph over good. Only Christianity has the worst thing that's ever happened to a person, an innocent, righteous man being executed and murdered unjustly, which turned into the greatest thing that's ever happened, sinful men and women, God's enemies being reconciled to him. So therefore, all suffering has a deeper meaning for us. We have the framework, man. Right? We have the roots. We have the anchor for all of those things. Some religions just tend to think of trouble and suffering as something that you stoically endure, that you embrace, or that you escape. I mean, even Buddhism acknowledges that to live is to suffer. And the one goal in life is to escape suffering. And Christianity, on the other hand, says it's to embrace suffering, to plow through suffering, and to even rejoice in suffering. That's what the Apostle Paul says. How counterintuitive is that? How supernatural is that? How against the grain and, and upstream thinking is that for, for most human beings? And even some Christians forget that. So catch the force of Paul's words here that Sarah just read. Romans 1, 1 through 5. And by the way, 30,000 foot view. Some people have said, I know I say this every week, whatever I'm preaching, right? Some people have said this is the most important paragraph in all the Bible. So 30,000 foot view today and later we'll zoom, we'll zoom in, okay? I know I can't possibly cover even all these five verses in this. But if you catch the force of Paul's word, he says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in our sufferings. How many of you suffered this week and rejoiced in your suffering? And that word rejoice, it actually means to boast. It actually means to celebrate, to embrace with enthusiasm, to sing. That's hard to do, isn't it? 
It doesn't come natural for us. We loathe suffering. We resent suffering. We run from it. We hate it. And, and, and Paul is not being sadistic here, or, or he's not a masochist, man. He's not like, I want to suffer. Bring it on. He's just saying when suffering comes, I don't run from it. I don't resent it. I embrace it. I embrace it because I see deeper meaning. I have, a, I have an anchor. I have hope that other people don't have because of what he's been arguing for the last two chapters. So I think it's the whole suffering and, and culture and history thing. I think the average American has no clue what is actually offered in Christ. Most people think Christianity is, and I, I speak as a man, merely, oh, you can be forgiven of your sins and go to heaven when you die, which is tremendous. We'll, we'll celebrate that for all eternity, amen? But does Christianity have anything to offer right here and right now? The average American has no clue. And I think many Christians neglect this truth, forget this truth, or it, it gets eclipsed. They have no clue the riches they have in Christ. And it reminds me of three brothers that you've never heard of before. Ned, Steve, and Roger Lando. These guys grew up in New Jersey, and their parents passed away, and they had to go and clean up the estate, and they were all looking at this weird picture that hung on the dining room wall. Growing up, they looked at it every day of their life, right in plain view, it's this weird picture, man, of this young lady who's either dead or passed out or fainted and two older people waving what looks like smelling salts under her nose to awaken her and to revive her. And they said, man, that painting always creeped us out. We hated it. One of them said, man, what kind of parent would hang that in a dining room? It's so morbid and, and gross. <laughs> so when they were collecting all their parent stuff, they said, you know what, let's just put this in, in Ned's basement. And they put it in a basement next to a bunch of other junk under a ping pong table. And a few years go by, and, you know, they, they need to clean out the clutter, and honestly, they need money. And they're like, you know what, we found some silver flatware and a couple of other old paintings. Why don't we do a garage sale and sell some of these things, and maybe these paintings will give a local auction down, down the street. So that's what they did. They gave it to a local auction down the street. And can I just make this long story short? That was a missing Rembrandt painting. It had been missing for 300 years. This was like the unicorn. <laughs> this was the unicorn of all art collectors. People had spent their entire life looking for this, and it was hidden in this New Jersey home that the grandfather bought during the Great Depression in the 1930s. And they stared at this thing every single day of their life, and they were put off by it. They thought it was weird. They thought it was morbid. They thought it was creepy. They hated it. All the brothers wanted to get rid of it. I'm not even going to tell you how much this thing was worth. You can go Google it later. I don't want to ruin the illustration. Let's just say this. Those men are very happy now. In fact, one of them, Ned, <laughs> one, Ned, he, he said this. Uh, th this was the earliest painting that Rembrandt ever painted. He was 18 years old, and he signed it. He signed it. Incredible. But, and it's hanging in the Getty Museum in L.A. if you want to go see it. So uh, one of the brothers says this now. Before, he said he was disgusted by it. It was repulsive. It was creepy. Now he says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of Rembrandt's best. It's my favorite. Because <laughs> it virtually made him a millionaire. Now, listen, I, I want to be honest with you. I think that the doctrine, the theology, the truth of justification by faith alone and Christ alone, we've been talking about this in Romans for the last two chapters. Paul has been defending it. He's been arguing for it. He's got watertight, airtight arguments that nobody can penetrate. He's addressed and answered and anticipated every objection. I think this doctrine, is, is, is this doctrine of justification by faith alone is a lot like that painting. 
People know about it, <clears throat> but they don't know what they have. You have been justified by Christ alone. Do you realize the spiritual wealth <clears throat> and the riches that are at your fingertips right here, right now? You don't have to wait until you die to enjoy them <clears throat> and to take them for a test drive, so to speak. They're yours right now, and they can significantly shape the way that you suffer. <clears throat> Thank you. Significantly shape the way that you suffer. So, all that to say this. This is going to be our message this morning, okay? Here are three realities that flow right out of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Paul's done arguing. He's already argued. The only way that a, a man or a woman can be justified is for Christ to do that work, to declare them righteous, to give them as a gift, unearned, unmerited, not your performance but his, a gift of Jesus Christ, a perfect life. How would you like that, a perfect life? That's what's required. Jesus demands you be perfect. I know a lot of people don't want to hear that, but that was the first sermon he ever preached, Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, you must be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the Christian gospel, the first half. Uh-oh, we're in trouble. How many people in here have thought you ever had a perfect afternoon? I came close once. <laughs> no, I actually didn't. I've never come close. I don't think I've lived a perfect minute of my life. Even my dreams are filled with sin sometimes. Remember that movie Groundhog Day? If you could just live the perfect day, man. And he can't even get it right. Jesus offers you a perfect life. Perfect, stainless. It's the only life that God will accept. He's not going to accept your performance. Trust me, there's nothing meritorious about it at all. In fact, it's repugnant and offensive to him. It's not our bad deeds that get us in trouble. It's our good deeds. <clears throat> what did Isaiah say? Your righteousness is what? It's pretty okay. No, it stinks. It's repugnant. It's disgusting. It's filthy rags. And I won't even tell you what that means in Hebrew. It's bad stuff. So that's what justification even means. Before we go even further, it means most religions, most systems of thought say, live the way you ought and God will accept you. Christianity says, based on Christ, God accepts you. Now you can live as you ought. See the difference? Complete reversal. Very revolutionary. Christianity, out of every thought system and religion, if you want to call it that in the world, offers that. And Paul's been arguing that. So, we're justified, we're declared blameless. As Sarah said earlier, it's finished, it's done. To die. it's over. So what does that mean for us? Three things. Number one, unbreakable peace with God. Number two, unlimited access to God. And number three, unassailable joy in suffering. And I've kind of titled this sermon the last point, and I don't even know if we'll really get to that point. So just bear with me. We'll do the best that we can. I know I'm known for preaching long sermons. You guys are always kind and gracious. <clears throat> we're going we're gonna to jet through this today, okay? Three realities of justification. Number one, unbreakable peace with God. Now, the Bible talks a lot about <clears throat> the peace of God. Philippians said, we have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, which is kind of like a a subjective feeling, it is well with my soul, kind of like the, the lady whose husband was dying said. But this is not what Paul's talking about. He's not really talking about this subjective feeling that may come or go. You may feel the peace of God one minute, and the next minute you may feel absolute despair. This comes before the subjective feeling. This is the objective reality. This is something that will never change, whether you feel it or whether you don't feel it. Do you always feel like you have peace with God? 
I don't. Do you sometimes feel like God is kind of offended by you? God's put off by you? God's angry at you? God is cosmically disappointed in you? Those feelings go up and down, but this is an objective reality that justification makes certain. We have objective peace between ourselves and God. Before, we were enemies. We were separated. We were alienated. There was distance between us because of sin and transgressions, and now Christ has came. He's filled the gap. He has reunited us. He's the Prince of Peace. That's why the second thing is access. But the first thing is peace, unbreakable peace with God. And unbreakable is a good way to describe it because there's nothing that could ever threaten that or jeopardize that or change that. Man, that's the beauty of, of Christianity. It's This is settled and there's nothing that could ever threaten it, nothing that could ever take it away, no matter what you do. And don't you love that about God? God knows the worst about you. He knows the worst things you will ever do you, that you don't even know you're going to do yet. He already knows about them. He's factored that in and you're still at peace with him. You still have all these freedoms, privileges, benefits, and blessings. Nothing could ever rob you or deprive you of them, ever. It's settled. And you know what? God wants you to know that because you'll forget it. I'll tell you next week and the week after that because we'll forget it. Martin Luther said every single week I preach justification by faith alone and Christ alone to my people because every single week they forget because we have gospel amnesia. We forget this. We can remember the dumbest things. I could remember lyrics to to bad songs that I grew up hearing in the 90s. And I can't even remember some gospel promises in the Bible, which to me is more validation that this is true. <laughs> Why is it easier to remember things like that? Bad things you did or bad things you heard or bad things you saw instead of the good things that God wants us to, to press into our memory forever. Anyway, so often we don't enjoy our subjective peace with God because we don't know about our objective peace with him. The feeling is gone because that reality is missing. That's why peace is so elusive, because we're alienated from God, and we forget that Christ has reunited us. That's why one of the motifs, one of the themes in the Bible, is that Christ is our reconciler. He reconciles us. You know what has to be in place? There has to be a previous reality before you're reconciled, and you know what it is? It's estrangement. Estrangement. You, av you avoid the people that you're not at peace with. Everybody's being so quiet. Today. You know this is true. You ever been at Publix or Winn-Dixie or whatever and you see that one person and suddenly uh, you want to open up the frozen food sections and look for a pizza? Why do you do that? <laughs> Come on, guys. Don't act all holy. Why do you do that? Why do you turn around and think they didn't see me? And you know what? They're thinking the same thing. They saw you. They went to the bread aisle. Why does that happen? Two things. Two, two, two reasons why. Either you're angry or you're afraid. Peace is not there. You're estranged. You need a mediator. You need a reconciler. That was you and God. You were not at peace with God. That's, that's from the very beginning of our sin and transgression. Adam and Eve, what do you think they enjoyed the most in the garden? Petting the tigers? <laughs> Walking around in the birthday suit unashamed? Being at peace with each other? No marital conflict? Before the kids came, after sin, right? Anyway, no, it was, it was walking in the cool of the garden with their maker and being at absolute and complete harmony and peace, having peace with him, objective peace that led to subjective peace, that led to unlimited access, that gave them unassailable joy. And Christ came to restore all of that in a way that's better 
because now it can't ever be broken. The fall's already happened, and now restoration. We have that hope of glory and restoration, and nothing can break that. Isaac Watts had a hymn, and it said, All the tribes of Adam boast more than what their father lost. We're actually in a better situation now than we were in the Garden of Eden. It's amazing. We sing about this every Christmas. I think if some people knew the Christmas carols they sing, it would shock them. Talking about some unbelievers. Check this out. Oh, I want to sing it so bad. <laughs> all right, all right. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. What's the next verse? Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. I love being in publics and hearing strangers say that. I have no clue what they're saying. And thank God, open their eyes. Hear it, hear, hear it on a secular radio station. People know this. We used to, you know, Western society used to have a better framework for suffering. Because we sang about these truths. We heard them. We saw them. We were biblically more literate than we are now. God and sinners reconciled. That's why we celebrate every Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. He didn't wait on us to wave our white flag and to go up and, and to seek reconciliation. God had to come down to us. I mean, it says it later in verse 10. While we were enemies, he died for us. Thank God he didn't wait. He'd still be waiting, wouldn't he? <laughs> with no hope. Guys, this is the truth that offends so many people, and even some Christians can't, they can't accept it. I mean, you have to to be a Christian, but you know what I'm saying. Nobody seeks after God. There are none righteous. Remember, we covered that in chapter 3. Thank God you guys made it. You came back. That's a hard truth for a lot of people. But man, without that hard truth, you don't get to these deeps of glory and hope. We were estranged. We were enemies. We were under God's wrath. And Christ came and changed all of that. Now we have peace. Have you guys ever seen those pictures of whenever a great and bloody and agonizing war is over and peace is declared? Man, strangers kiss each other. They dance in the streets. People talk. They throw parties. Schools close. Businesses close. People get smashed. They shouldn't, but they do. I mean, people celebrate. Paul is announcing here the end of the greatest, most cosmic war that the world has ever seen. God and sinners reconciled because of Christ. There can be no greater truth. I mean, we could preach on this for a year. For a year. I think it's Psalm chapter 7 that says, God is angry with the wicked every day. He makes ready his bow. He prepares and sharpens his instruments of death. Man, that's like a vivid picture, isn't it? He makes ready his bow. Now, I grew up in the South. I grew up hunting. And I remember when I got a compound bow, I was so scared because the broadheads on those things are razor sharp. And I just can't imagine just even pretending, drawing back that bow with a razor sharp broadhead and just aiming it at somebody just for a second. But the picture in Scripture of what unforgiven, unreconciled to God sinners are, the predicament they're in, it's much more frightening than that. And Christ came, and, and you would want to say, he pushed the bow out of the way, but he didn't. You know what he did? He stood between us and God's instruments of wrath, and he absorbed all of it. So therefore, there's now no longer any enmity between justified men and women and God. Isn't that beautiful? That shouldn't be offensive to us. That should be glorious. And there's other people that need to hear that news. And that's just point one.
Okay, point number two, unlimited access to God. Most Bibles translate this as access, but a better word is, is actually an introduction. And, and the word picture here is, the word picture is, is of an inter, introducer, somebody who takes you into the presence of a monarch, a powerful ruler, into his ruling chamber, into his throne room, somebody that takes you there and introduces you and says, now you belong here. You don't have to pretend, you don't have to cower, you don't have to be afraid. You actually belong here, and you can come here not only with confidence, you can have audacity, you can have boldness to say, you know what, this king wants me here. You know what access really means? It means at any time, at any place, and for any reason, you have personal access to the one who, who can most help you. <laughs> anytime, for any reason, at any place complete access, and nothing's ever going to change that. It even says in this verse, check this out, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, this is all through Christ, through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You stand here. It's permanent, man. It's never, it's never going to be taken away from you. You'll never be deprived of it. You can always have access to God at any given moment. This is what Christ came to do. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He introduced us. His suffering, death, resurrection brought us to God and united us and reconciled us. In other words, we're not just forgiven. The executioner invites you to his house and gives you his family name, right? <laughs> you're sitting at the table. You're in the family. You're in the kingdom. You belong, you're the brother of Christ, you're the son of God, you're a child of God, I should say it that way. The other sounds a little blasphemous, doesn't it? You know what I mean by that, though. You're not the son of God, you're a son of God. You've been brought in his family, given his name, partaker of the divine nature, and all the other verses that talk about the freedoms and the privileges we get. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father, how much more amazing is that? How many powerful rulers and kings do you think are happy to see their needy, belligerent people? <laughs> Can you think of any powerful rulers that are like, hey, anytime any of the most petty people in this kingdom need to come and see me, they can march right into my throne room. I'd be so happy to see them. How many rulers do you think that's true of? How many politicians really have an open door policy? How many? <laughs> None. None of them do. And yet... And yet, Hebrews says we have bold access, we have confidence. Proverbs says God delights to hear the prayers of his people. The more needy, the more brokenhearted, the more frazzled, the more he's drawn to you. Ray Ortland said this, God is wonderfully drawn and attracted to need. The deeper you need, the more closely he, and more powerfully he's drawn to you. I love that. We don't, we don't really see this much in our world. And there's multiple illustrations of this. Here's one. These two jokers, for two years, went to this... <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. These two guys went for two years to this all-you-can-eat buffet in England. And for 12 pounds, you can really eat all you want. But it turns out the manager kind of got sick of it. And he's like, look, guys, this is ridiculous. You guys are breaking the bank. You come here, you're rude, you're loud, you don't tip... You don't say thank you. You stay here for five hours, 
enough. I'm sick of it. And he actually banned them for life from this all-you-can-eat buffet in England. They're banned, man. They've been kicked out. <laughs> Access has been denied. This is what one of them claims. He says, as we were eating the last bowl, the owner came up and said, never to come back again. We're, dis <laughs> we're disgusting, and we're eating him out of business. He said, we're nothing but filthy pigs. I've had it with you two, he said. That's it. The, the manager was interviewed, and he said, we have put up with them for two years, but I've had enough. In two years, neither of them have ever tipped or purchased anything other than water in the buffet. Honey, we're not the only one. They don't get the $2.99 soft drink. Oh, no. <laughs> they push out other diners in their mad rush to get the food. No manners. So the manager got tired of them, and it turns out that this all-you-can-eat, unrestricted, unlimited access was a lie. It was a facade. It was pretend. And as silly as that may seem, that's really the way we think about all the access we're promised that's free, right? But that's not so. With God's never going to get tired of you. You're never going to get kicked out, okay? This is really unrestricted, unlimited access. You've got a backstage VIP ticket that somebody else bought for you, and it can't be revoked. I mean, I don't know. Think of the greatest entertainer that you would give your left pinky to go see. And, and how does that pale in comparison? And not just go see front row ticket, but get a backstage pass and hang out with them all afternoon. Ask them any question. Ask for their power and their resources, and you get the idea. See, what happened when we sinned was we lost access. We lost access to God. This is how uh, one of my favorite translations of the Bible is called the net, and it's a literal word-for-word -word Hebrew translation. And one of the classes I took in seminary was, it was a Hebrew vocab, and uh, if it weren't for Jeff Eckert, I would have failed that class. I don't know why Greek came pretty easy for me, but Hebrew... It's the only class I ever cried in, honey. Remember, I came home and I cried. I'm like, I can't do it. <laughs> anyway. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. The Net Bible, word for word, Hebrew, says this. So the Lord God expelled him, that's the man, from the orchard in Eden to cultivate the ground from which he had been taken. When he drove the man out, he placed on the eastern side of the orchard in Eden angelic sentries. See, we've always thought of like this one angel there. No, it's in the plural, cherub. They're like sentry angels. Sentries who use the flame of a whirling sword to guard the way to the tree of life. I learned in that class when I translated this passage, wrongly, by the way, but it was corrected by the teacher, um, that this, this, this phrase, the, the grammar and the, vo the meaning of those words is so rich and electric and powerful in Hebrew it literally has the connotation of this whirling sword that goes back and forth and is on fire. Isn't that interesting? Here's access to God, and you've ruined it. You've marred it. You've forfeited it. And just you try to get back in to paradise. Just you try to go see your maker again, see what happens. There's two angels there. By the way, angels are terrifying. Cherub, or they're not the chubby, fat Hallmark angels you see on, on Hallmark cards. I mean, the one angel in the Old Testament slaughtered 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. And there's two of those guys posted at the entrance to Eden with a flaming sword. Have you ever seen one of those movies where there's, there's like a museum or a bank heist and people are trying to get in there and rob it and there's these lasers and if you touch one of them, you trigger the alarm anyway. I, I don't know, in my mind, that's what I see with the sword. Like, whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. The same word in Hebrew for whirling was used of swirling clouds 
in a tumbling bread row in Gideon's dream and Judges. So you get the idea there's motion, there's movement. When you were a kid, did you ever do that? If you had a brother or a sister and you were like, like, come try to get by me, try to get by me. I remember a kid when, when I was in elementary school, he said, hey, I got a punch that you can't, I took karate. He said, I got this punch that you can't defend. I'm like, no, you don't. He said, yeah, I do. You ready? I said, yeah. And he went, and he punched me right in the chin. He was right. I couldn't defend it. There's this whirling sword, a flame that's turning every which way. Just you try to get by God's flaming, whirling sword of justice to get back in his presence. Go ahead and try it. See what happens. My Hebrew professor, he had this raspy Richard Harris voice. And he said, why was that there? He wasn't English. I don't know why I'm doing it that way. <laughs> he said, don't you think Adam and Eve would have wanted to go back and take a peek into paradise that they forfeited? He said, and the angel said, not a chance, not a hope. And now think of Christ. What has Christ accomplished for us? Entrance back into the very presence of God. I mean, if you read the Old Testament, the whole thing has got this big no access sign flashing all the way through, starting with the angels, and then you got Moses. God said, call Moses. He said, Moses, come up to the mountain. Oh, da, da, da. Just Moses, only Moses, and you better be ready. Anybody else, you stay at the bottom. Don't approach the mountain. Don't touch the mountain. You'll be executed. It's a capital offense on the spot. Any animal that touches it will be killed. And there was even a ceremonial cleansing process for the people that were there that saw that. Fast forward the tape. You've got the temple. You've got some of the thickest curtains known in the existence of the world. Like, how, how thick are those things, Cliff? Were we talking about this? Like, 12 inches or maybe two feet thick, these curtains, you could not break through those curtains and they separated in the temple the Holy of Holies. And only one man, once a year, was allowed to go in there. The, the, the high priest on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, he would go in there and he would go through all these rituals to present and to offer a sacrifice of blood sprinkled on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, which was the very presence of God in the Old Testament, in the center of all the tribes, all 12 tribes, circled around the tabernacle, and access to God was limited and restricted. Pretty amazing. And then you got these instances of a man like, like uh, Uzzah. You remember Uzzah? In the Old Testament, when the Ark of God was trying to be brought back into Jerusalem, and they did it wrong, they put it on a cart with oxen, and God was already angry about it. And then it was, it was going to fall off and hit the mud. And Uzzah reached out his hand in an innocent gesture. God forbid that the Ark of the Covenant would fall and hit the dirty ground. And so instead, he touched out his dirty hand and touched it. And you remember what happened? He was killed instantly. And you think, oh my, what a capricious, unpredictable, moody God. No, a just and a holy God. And he told you not to touch it, and you shouldn't have, because you don't have access and then you got Nadab and Abihu, the first priest after Aaron, his sons. And it was their, their first day, man, to, to offer worship to God. And you remember what they did? They offered unauthorized worship. It was called strange fire. And what did God do? He burned them to a crisp, and he told Aaron, don't you even shed a tear over this. Man, what the heck? <laughs> it's the holiness and the justice of God, access denied. And then Christ came. And what did he do? Christ underwent the sword of God's flaming justice. I mean, that's what a sword represents, death and slaughter. If you want to get back into the presence of God, it's going to require somebody to bleed and to die and to suffer and to be slaughtered and cut into a million pieces. 
And what was Christ? He was the Lamb of God, wasn't he? And if somebody's going to walk into the presence of God, it's going to require justice. It's going to require atonement. For mankind to be brought near God, somebody's going to have to suffer the penalty for the alienation. That's exactly what we're told Jesus did, what he accomplished for us. No access in the Old Testament, and one of the benefits of justification is unlimited access. Unlimited, all you want. Better than a buffet. Gorge yourself on access to God, right? If you would have went to a Jew in the Old Testament, and they would have said in Hebrew, how you doing, old boy? And you'd say, I'm doing great, man. Uh, and you said, you know, I can waltz into the throne room of God any old time I want. They would fall over dead. They would think, you've got to be out of your mind. And when they came to, with smelling salts maybe, uh, they would say, I I bet you spent a lot of time there then, don't you? (laughs) Which is kind of a shameful way to think about it, I guess. How much time do we spend in such access to God that, that came at such a great cost? Probably not as much as we wish we would. This is Elise Fitzpatrick. I love her. She wrote a devotional on Romans called Comfort from Romans. And she was trying to explain what access to God would mean, and she used an Old Testament story about Esther. You remember Esther? She was a Jew living in Persia when King Ahasuerus was in charge, and he was a pretty vindictive and unpredictable Gentile ruler like most of them were in the Old Testament. He was volatile. He was moody. His first wife, he had a big party. Everybody got drunk. And he commanded for his beautiful wife named Vashti to come and parade herself in front of all of his friends. And some people believe, it says in the, in the narrative, for her to put on her crown and come and walk in front of all of her friends and show her beauty. Some people think in the Hebrew it means wear only her crown. And she said, no, I'm not doing it. And he banished her. He said then, I'm not married to you anymore. Get out of my kingdom. Get out of my palace. And so King Ahasuerus was looking for a new wife, a new queen. And Esther was a Jew, and she was beautiful. And it turns out, long story short, uh, there was this conspiracy with one of King Ahasuerus' leaders named Haman. That was his name, right? Or Mordecai. I get them mixed up. One's good, one's bad. And they were wanting to eradicate all the Jews, and and Esther was their only hope. So her uncle, Mordecai, said, Esther, we're going to fast. We're going to pray you need, to, you need to get in the lineup here, this beauty pageant, whatever it was, and you need to be in the running for the new wife. You're the only hope the Jews have. And so she did. She spent a long time getting beautified and putting on the best makeup that Persia had. And you can read the story. It's fascinating. And finally, she went into the king's chambers, and you can only imagine what happened there. The old story doesn't edit itself, does it? It's reality. And the king liked her. She was pretty. She made him happy. So she became his new wife. But there was a rule in Persia that in order for anybody to walk into the presence of the king, you had to be invited. And if you weren't invited and you walked into his throne room and you caught him in a bad mood, you would be executed. The only hope you had is for the golden scepter to be extended to you and to touch you. And that meant you're welcome. Well, Esther was afraid. She was beautiful. She was his wife. She'd already been with him once. She was fearful for her life. She knew she had to walk into his chamber and beg for the life of her fellow countrymen, the Jews, 
the men and the women, and to expose the evil of his right-hand guy who was trying to execute them. And you remember the story? She did. She took the courage. She went in, and he saw her, and he extended the golden scepter. But what a contrast, man, to what we have with God. And, that, and that's, what, that's what she says. You've already read this as I've been talking, haven't you? But I'll read it again. She's, she said this. She said, although Esther had been a chosen favorite of Ahasuerus, and despite the fact that he had made her his queen, she felt no confidence in entering his presence. She did not know whether he would order her execution or welcome her into his arms. She did not know whether he would be at peace with her or be in the mood to humiliate or annihilate her. I mean, the guy doesn't have the best track record with wives, does he? Even being his wife didn't guarantee welcome access into the king's presence. See, she didn't have any grace in which to stand. She didn't have that. You do. I do. We have access to God. We have grace in which we can stand. She had to bathe. She had to pray. She had to fast. She had to put on royal robes. And the hopes, and the hopes, the wishes, the optimism that she would be accepted. Guys, we already, we don't have to bathe. We've already been cleansed. We've been clothed with the robe of Christ's righteousness. And we are most welcome in the presence of God at any time. Unrestricted, unlimited access. Because when he sees you, he sees the righteous, clean robes of his son. Isn't that a beautiful thing? You get that from justification. Does that matter when you're suffering? Absolutely it matters. Did you hear the words of that wife sitting beside her dying husband in the hospital? It can be well with your soul. You have unlimited access. You have unbreakable peace. And that also gives you this unassailable joy. Usually joy and suffering don't mix. It's kind of like oil and water, jumbo and shrimp, Microsoft and works. You get the picture, right? Sarah Clayton and snakes. I could go on. And that's because we make our joy into kind of a happiness. We make it dependent on circumstances. We really do, and you know this. We attach and tether our happiness to things that betray us, that are so fragile. And we're disappointed. We're left embarrassed. We're left ashamed. And I love this passage because it talks about we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And you know, biblical hope is not a wish for. It's not a hope so. It's certainty. It's not this blind optimism. It's like a future reality. We know that we're going to be united and experience God's glory. That's a ho it's an, hope is called an anchor in the New Testament. It's deep. It's solid. We're not tossed all over the place by changing circumstances. Everybody in this room, you've got your joy attached to something. And I hope, I hope it's not a circumstance that can change. Like your health. I have a pastor that wrote me an email, a good friend of mine for over two decades. He's got three children. One of them just started college. He's in a ministry he loves and is enjoying. And he called me, and then he sent me an email, and he said, hey, man, I just wanted you to know I got stage two lower abdominal cancer. And I just got my port put in. I'm going to have chemo. I'm going to have radiation. It's going to be a really challenging year, but we're rejoicing. We're rejoicing because we're trusting God, and we know this is for his glory and it's for our good. And he said, the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, our outer shell is perishing, but it can't be compared to the glory which is to come. Man, what a perspective. How can he say that? How can that wife of the dying husband say that? Because their joy is tethered to something that's unchanging. And not only can they withstand suffering and face it, they can grow through it. <laughs> suffering is far from our enemy, man. God uses that as like the secret atomic bomb to Christian growth and hope. 
It builds character, which helps us persevere, which you see in this passage, it, it deepens and strengthens and sweetens our hope in Christ. That's this promise. And I love that. There's a movie. I'm going to close with this, okay? If I can get reconnected here. It's my phone's fault today. Um, there's, a, there's a movie that I love. It's my favorite. It's over 20 years old now. It's a gladiator. And I watched it the other day. And I, uh, Amen. Thank you. Thank you, both of you. Um, <laughs> there's a scene that I, that I had missed before. It's when the old Caesar, uh, Marcus Aurelius, and, Mar- and Maximus, the gladiator, they're talking. And he's old, and he's looking over his life. And he says, hey, come and, and let's talk about Rome. And they start talking about Rome. And he's Caesar, and so he's, he's seen Rome. He lives there, but he's seen behind the curtain, so to speak. He sees the corruption. He sees the politics. He sees the deception. And so he's not so sure anymore that Rome is all that glorious. And this is what he says. He says, there was once a dream that was Rome. You could only whisper it. Anything more than a whisper, and it would vanish. It was so fragile, and I fear that it will not survive the winter. I honestly think some of the things that you and I attach our hope to and our joy to, it's so fragile. It's like Rome. It, it won't survive the winter. It certainly is not going to survive whatever suffering and anguish we come to. Is your hope in your beauty? Can I just, just want to be so real with you today. If your hope is in your beauty, go to a nursing home and just pick somebody out, right? Because we're, we're aging, I and mean, I'm not being disrespectful to, to senior saints in our midst. It's a glory. Gray hair is a glory, the Bible says. There's a wisdom and experience you guys can offer us, and I pray that we receive it and that you give it. But we're all aging, and gravity takes over. Our bodies fail. Our bodies grow weak, and they get broken. It's harder to sleep. It's harder to function, right? So if, if, if your joy was attached to your physical strength and to your beauty, you're going dis- to be disappointed one day. Or if it's attached to your success, or to your wealth, or to your bank account. I'm hearing some troubling things about what the next year may bring, right? Your joy is going to be, it's going to be like a yo-yo. Or if your joy is attached to friendships you have, or friendships you don't have. Or a marriage you do or don't have, or can or can't keep. Or the way your kids treat you, or how good ministry is. Or how well people like your sermons and your illustrations, or whatever it is. Anything you attach and tether your joy to that's outside of Christ, I can promise you, man, it is a risky hope and it's a gamble. It's like you're in Vegas and you're putting it all on black. You've got a 50-50 chance of getting your heart broken. Really, you have a 100% chance because eventually it will be broken. It will be broken. Better to tether it all to Christ right now and say, I have confidence, man, that I can withstand the worst that comes to be. That's why the early Christians would sing when they got thrown to the lions. And so much more that I'll, I'll talk about another time. That's enough for today, okay? Let's pause and pray. Thank you guys for being so patient. I wanted, to, I wanted to cover what I did today. I pray that these truths free you and liberate you and, he, and, and help shape the way you think about your life and about the suffering you're going to encounter. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your grace Thank you for these truths, the reality of these truths, Lord. Help us to probe deeper into them. And may they secure and anchor our heart. Help us to meditate on them even now, Lord, as we, uh, as our worship team.
plays a song of reflection, help us to just sit in our seat and think of all the power and the beauty that comes from these realities of being justified by faith, these things that can't be threatened, they're not in jeopardy of being taken from us, Lord, unexpectedly, we have them for good, we stand in them, we walk in them, we soak in them, we glory in them, and we rejoice in all the brokennesses that we walk through, because we know the glory that is to come and that is to be ours. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is our song of reflection, and then Steve is going to come and make a few announcements, um, and then that'll be it for today. But it, where you're, wherever you're at in your seat, you can, you can stay there and ponder and reflect. We call this our Selah song, the way the psalmist would say some heavy and profound truths, and then he would say Selah. That means pause, reflect, meditate, take, take a deep breath, enjoy it, soak it in, absorb it. And we have a prayer team in the back that would love the opportunity to pray with you. If you want to just go and cry on somebody's shoulder, ask for help, pray for healing, ask for God to make these truths yours, make these realities where you can own them, this is, this is your time to do that as, uh, as they play. And then Steve will come up. Guys. The Savior said, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. All to
morning. I have to tell you, my Selah moment was stepping outside into the sunshine for just a moment. We, um, I, won't, I won't keep you for a moment. We just have a couple of announcements to talk about this morning. But um, we also wanted to take a moment to welcome to our fellowship this morning um, Matthew Carr and his wife Alexa and their son, uh, Haddon. So um, this is uh, this is a return, but a, a, a new beginning for Grace Life as we uh, transition now into having two pastors here and um, additional staff, and just uh, we look forward so much to to them joining us at, at this fellowship and um, an opportunity to serve here. So we are so thankful to have them here this morning. Um, and the rest of my note here says that we'll have a, a better opportunity to get to meet them more on Sunday the 9th or, or Sunday something at the end of October. So um, that's upcoming. Pa pardon? Fifth Sunday. Ah, okay, fifth Sunday. Sorry, sorry, Tommy, I can't read your handwriting here, but... Uh, Hope that's not what you, where your notes are on Sunday mornings. <laughs> on October the 31st, there will be um, um, an outreach uh, at the home of uh, Matt and Lindsay Kokari, and you'll hear more about that. Um, but they've invited the whole church to participate in that. That's uh, Sunday night, and that's the fifth Sunday service. So invited the whole church to come bring candy. Um, it's just a, a, a great outreach for the whole community, and so we, we want to invite everyone that can be there to be there. And I'm sorry I don't have the correct order on this. I guess I'm messing you guys up in the, in the, in the booth up there. What's it mean to live for Jesus moment by moment? And how does our current faith flesh out that out? That's what we're going to be talking about in the men's gathering, which is coming up on Thursday at the Sanchez home. Um, so we hope to see all you men there to, to hear uh, and to finish discussing this topic. Women, you will be meeting uh, on Tuesday night at, um, at an unknown site. <laughs> And I think Sarah will be sharing, but if you wanted to find out where and you need the address, please contact the, uh, the church office or look online at our church uh, gathering, at our, our church app. And finally, I think the only other advertisement, advertisement, the only other announcement that I have is the, um, on November the 13th, a group called Beyond the Storm is going back to Louisiana to uh, work with Samaritan's Purse in doing disaster relief, uh, sharing the gospel with the hurting people in Louisiana. Uh, Samaritan's Purse has three different sites, over 2,000 work orders, 2,000 people have reached out to Samaritan's Purse to have them help recover. Uh, who would have thought that a hammer and a flat bar could be used uh, as a ministry tool, but uh, 
you get a chance to be a part of someone's life for just a few hours during the week, and that's an opportunity for us to show the hope of Jesus and to present the gospel, and uh, Samaritan's Purse is very faithful to do that. Well, there's another trip coming up on November 13th that you are invited to go. Um, I'll be going. I'm not sure if Bill and Christy will be able to go. There's others here in the church that are part of that ministry, but if you have any interest in that, please um, uh, contact one of us, and we'll be able to give you the additional details on that. So, let's do our charge, and then you can go out and get some sunshine. I am a witness. I have been called to minister to my neighborhood in both word and deed. God has given me his word to equip me, his spirit to empower me, and his love to motivate me. I pledge my life for the gospel. You have been sent, I think, 